It's amazing that in these days, we are seeing prophecy fulfilled for the second coming because much must happen for the second coming to unfold. And of course, when you see that happening, you should be reminded that it is that much closer. Look, if the early church saw some of these things unfolding in their day, they would have been absolutely blown away. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're nearing the end of our study of the Revelation, and today, Dr. Brogy, from verses 6 through 9 of chapter 22, will show that we are called not to worship any man or position, but rather we're called to worship the triune God alone. Let's join him now as he looks at the accuracy of the prophecy in the Revelation and gives us an introduction to our message, Are You Ready for Jesus' Return? Today, just north of Israel is Russia and the country of Syria. And the scripture teaches that they will, in the end, go against the people of Israel. Iran, who in the 1970s was a faithful ally of Israel, now hates Israel and lives for her absolute total destruction and elimination. Here's a photo of three world leaders, the president of Turkey, who, by the way, Turkey was the first Muslim-majority country in 1949 to recognize the state of Israel. For a long time, they were allies of Israel. Now they hate Israel like Iran. And here are three leaders from three countries Three countries that are prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that will actually go against the people of Israel. Now, 70 years ago, if you made such a suggestion, you'd almost be laughed at. And yet Israel has once again been brought into her land. She's been established as a nation. And countries that were once allies are now enemies. In addition, there has been the formation of the United Nations, and there is an openness for world government like never before, paving the way for the one world government that the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter, speaks of. In addition, there is a movement across the world for a one world church. The last three popes in Rome have brought together leaders from faiths from across the planet, pushing a ecumenical movement of sorts. The Bible teaches in Revelation 17 there will be a one-world religion, and the capital of city that the Antichrist will use is the city of Rome. And of course, beyond that, the Bible is very clear that after the church is removed, a seven-year period of time that concerns Israel will unfold. And the fact that Israel is back in the land is absolutely amazing. If you read sermons from the 1860s, where pastors like myself who believed the plain teaching of Scripture preached on such things. They were literally laughed at. They were a minority. I've read some of those sermons. But the things they wrote about, they found in Scripture. In 1890, there were only 25,000 Jews living in Israel. Today, nearly 6.9 million Jews of the 12.5 million Jews on the planet. This is what God said would happen at the end of time before the second coming. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel said in the 36th chapter. For I will take you from the nations 
gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And then he says in chapter 38 of that great book, after many days you will be summoned in the latter years. If you know your Bible, you know the phrase in the latter years is used by the Old Testament prophets to describe that period of time just before Messiah comes and rules on the earth. After many days you'll be summoned in the latter years, You will come into the land that is restored from the sword whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. There's a spirit of anti-Semitism that is growing in the world, and it causes many Jews to want to leave their countries and to go to Israel. Others believe that because God's uh, throne is on the Temple Mount, And they are old covenant saints, so to speak, as Abraham was, but not in the truest sense because they are in unbelief. They have not received God's revelation, but they recognize that there are things that are to happen in the city of Jerusalem. And that's why thousands, millions of Jews have gone back to Israel. It's a miracle no other nation. They were literally scattered through all the nations of the world in 70 AD, and it was completed through the Bar Kokhba rebellion in 135. And now if you go to Israel today, there's over 100 nations of Jews. God said, I will bring them from the four corners of the earth, from the north, from the south, from the remotest parts of the world, and indeed they have come. That's the first step. He gathers them physically before he will renew them spiritually. And so we're living in a day, too, which the Bible prophesizes concerning apostasy. There's always been apostasy in the church, but there is coming apostasy like we've never seen before. It's called the apostasy. In the one great nation of the world, the United States, that for 100 years has led in the preaching of the gospel. Apostasy has entered in like never before. I was reading this week of a woman pastor from a denomination who came to the Campus Crusade National Staff Training this past summer, now called Crew. And along with other regional leaders of the organization, she was legitimizing same-sex attraction. Apostasy, it's entered into ministries, It's entered into seminaries. When I was asked to consider being a candidate to be the president of Dallas Seminary, I said, I can't in light of these things. If you're willing to change these things, I would be willing to change my mind. But apostasy is walking in the front door. And so you have churches and seminaries and leaders who are talking more about the social gospel and social justice and intersectionality than they are about the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back for his church. All kinds of things need to happen for him to come back in the second coming. But God is fulfilling prophecy for the second coming, which should alert you that the rapture is that much closer. Now, we're going to look at today, Revelation 22, just verses 6 through 9. Follow along. I hope you brought a Bible. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. 
And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. Now remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, so don't let them distract you. When you come to verse 6 of chapter 22, you've started the final portion of the Revelation, what we call the epilogue. So it's the second bookend. The first was the prologue found in chapter 1 and the opening verses. Now we are coming to the epilogue. And we have here some final words spoken by three different individuals, an angel, the apostle John himself, and we will see the words of the Lord Jesus. And so here today in our passage, this exchange takes place between one of the seven angels who had one of the seven bowls of judgment. And as you read these verses, we're somewhat struck with the truth that all that the apostle John saw, each and every vision that he has given, and all that he records is written to produce a response in you and in me. And there are three responses that we find in these few verses. If you're using your note-taking outline, the first response is that we are to wait. When we think about Jesus coming back from heaven, we are to wait. Look, if you will, again in verse 6 of chapter 22. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. Now you read that and you say, he said to me, and you say, who is the he? And you go back to chapter 22 in verse 1, where we were introduced to this particular angel. And again, it says, he said. And so you say, well, again, who is the he? And you have to go to back to chapter 21 in verse 9. And there we read, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So the he here, this angel, is one of the seven angels who had one of the seven bowls of wrath. We were introduced to those seventh, seven angels in the shortest chapter in the Revelation, the 15th chapter. Seven angels, each carrying a bowl of wrath. And we were introduced to this angel earlier. So 22.6 goes back to 22.1, 22.1 goes back to 21.9, and 21.9 goes back to 17.1, where we first met this angel. Let me refresh your mind with it. We read almost identical wording than one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Same angel. And so how appropriate. First, he shows John the devil city where the Antichrist will have his religious and economic capital. It's called Babylon or Rome. And he describes that city in those two chapters as a great harlot, as a woman, because people will give their love and affection to the Antichrist when they should give it to the Lord Jesus. Well, this same angel then gives him a tour of the holy city where the redeemed live, and the redeemed are called the wife the bride. And this city is also called by the same terms and how appropriate. 
And so there's a lot of time that is spent in describing this eternal city. Why is that? Because since Christ emptied out righteous Sheol that happened at the ascension, from that moment on, every believer who died went to the new Jerusalem, to the Father's house. And so your loved ones who knew the Lord, who have gone home to be with Jesus, they're in the place that we've been studying all the way through chapter 21, where he gave us largely an external tour, and then the first five verses of chapter 22, where he gave us the inside tour. And how appropriate that he would spend so much time on it, because that's where God's people are at for some 2,000 years. But we've already learned that's just the capital city of a new heaven and a new earth that God is going to make. You know, uh, a pastor was interviewed recently, his church burned to the ground, struck by lightning. And he said, no, we still have a church because the church is not this building, it's the people. And we'll go on. And he was correct. This building is not Community Bible Church building. It's the meeting place of Community Bible Church. The church is the people. And so in God's economy, the people are identified with his church if they know Jesus. In the same way, there are cities that are identified with the people who live in that city. And so some cities have a particular description because that's the way the people are in that city. Philadelphia, originally called the city of brotherly love, was known for its great hospitality and love and care for people. I'm not so much sure today, but still, that was the original identification. Well, with this city, the bride, the church lives there, but the city itself is called the bride. So here in 22.6, When the verse opens, and he said to me, contextually, we know precisely who the he is. This is the same angel that we studied last week who gave the inside tour where we saw the throne room of God and we saw the water of life clear as crystal flowing down that throne room. And notice he said to me, these words are faithful and true. He wants John to realize that the things that have been prophesied that he will record are completely both faithful and true. It's not too good to be true. It's faithful and true. How so? He gives us an explanation why we can know these words are faithful and true. These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. God's angel tells us that it was the Lord, the God who inspired uh, the spirits of the prophets. It's the same God, the same work of God that is giving us the book of Revelation. Listen to this verse. You might want to put it out in the margin next to verse 6 because it's really a parallel verse, 2 Peter 1.21. 2 Peter 1.21. Peter said it this way. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Uh, Some translations say a matter of one's own origination. In other words, it did not have its origin, the Scripture, in the will of man. How so? For no prophecy was ever made as an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. If you pulled out a computer concordance, you would discover that some 3,800 times the Bible identifies itself as the Word of God. It will either say God said or thus says the Lord. 
Now, sometimes when a Christian is confronted, why do you believe the Bible to be the Word of God? And they'll quote a verse like 2 Timothy 3.16, for all Scripture is inspired by God. Well, the unbeliever would say, well, that's somewhat of a circular argument. But understand, if the Bible did not claim to be the Word of God, and it does, again, some 3,800 times, and we tried to make it out to be the Word of God, we would have a serious, serious problem. But Revelation 22.6 and this verse in 2 Peter 1 are two very important verses because it's reminding us that the Bible was not written by men independently of God. God worked in their spirits. So here in 2 Timothy 3.16 in the New American Standard, it says all Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, as the NIV 84, and they rarely get it literally, but literally it says all Scripture is God-breathed. Theos, God, neustos, all Scripture is the breath of God. The YLT translation says every writing is God-breathed. The ESV says all Scripture is breathed out by God. The King James says all Scripture is given by inspiration. Spiration. <sighs> the breath of God. And just as my voice is my breath coming up out of my diaphragm from my lungs, up over my larynx, being uh, brought through my vocal cords and the words being articulated by my lips, my tongue, and my teeth, what you are hearing this morning is Carl's breath, the breath of Carl. Even so, the scripture is the breath of God as much as if God had a voice box. That's what you are reading this morning. Inspiration, that it is God-breathed does not mean that God took something dead and breathed life into it. For that matter, it doesn't even mean that God breathed into the human authors of Scripture. But it does mean, as it's used in the New Testament, that God breathed the Bible out of himself through the spirits of the prophets, and they recorded it, they wrote it down. The truth is not that God breathed into the writers of the writings, but he breathed out of his mouth precisely what he wanted to be written. And so it doesn't say the writers are inspired, though they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. It said the scripture, the graphe, the final product is what is God-breathed. And because God is infallible, his word is infallible. And because God cannot err, his word cannot err. That's why Peter in his first epistle calls the word of God truth. He describes it as the pure, unadulterated word of God. The scripture is God-breathed since these men were moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Listen, without stutter or stammer or fear of any apology, the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, eternal word of God, period. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, and the word moved is a first century sailing term when a sail is filled with wind. And so these men were filled, they were moved along by the breath of God as they wrote scripture. So let's relate inspiration here to verse six in our text this morning. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. This angel is telling the apostle John that while he himself as an angel is not a prophet of God, the message that he has delivered from the Father to Christ to himself to John is no less 
the infallible, inerrant Word of God. He's simply telling John that what he has written down, what he has been giving is as inspired as any Old Testament prophet of ages gone back. And I might say, not only will these prophecies be fulfilled as they were for the first coming, and how are the prophecies for the first coming fulfilled? Every single one of them, without exception, literally. When God says that Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, we go, I wonder, maybe Bethlehem is just a, a place where they grow bread and not a real city and you can allegorize. No, every single prophecy was literally fulfilled. And just as God moved through those men of old, he's moving through John, and he will literally fulfill it in, again in our day as we noted in the introduction this morning. We are seeing prophecy fulfilled in our day. It's absolutely amazing. Now, the apostle John had an experience, as we've already noted, that was somewhat unique. True, Paul received a vision. In fact, it was so real, he said, I'm not sure if I was physically there or if it was just a vision. But he wrote about what he saw in heaven, and basically he couldn't write anything. God said, uh, I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh so you'll never brag about the place. But John is given a revelation of heaven, and not just heaven. He's given a revelation of the whole prophetic span of issues. He takes basically the schematic for the end times that's given through the prophet Daniel, and he fills in all the fine details which is why in verse 8, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I'll read it in a moment. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. So in that sense, he has an edge on the process of inspiration because not only is he inspired to write the text, but he is an eyewitness of the prophetic plan that has unfolded. God pulls back the curtain for John, and he allows him to hear and see the future. And in essence, he comes back from the future, and then he writes it down. And so the angel in saying this is faithful and true, he's basically saying, this is not too good to be true. And you know what they say about things that are too good to be true. This is not made up. And God sent his angel, notice verse 6, to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Now, the epilogue of this great book that begins here in verse 6 closes the book in the same way it started. Do you remember how the book started? Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So here we are at the end of the book, and like in the opening verse, we are told the purpose of this revelation, this unveiling, is to show God's people, his bondservants, what must take place. So this book was not written primarily to mystify. That's what people would have you to believe. It was written in order to explain, to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And by the way, if you are one of his bondservants this morning, then the Father has given permission to the Son through this angel who gave it to John, and we're reading it this morning, for you to know the future. Now, if you're not one of his bondservants, this will seem like a lot of hooey. How so? Because without a regenerated mind... 
you can't really understand Scripture. God gives you enough understanding so you can be saved. But if you refuse the salvation, then you're physically alive and you're spiritually dead. You're called a natural man. That's the way we come into this world. And the natural man or the unbeliever, Paul says, does not understand the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised or discerned. So he notes specifically here in verse 6 about the things that must soon take place. He said, well, what do we mean by soon? After all, this was written some 2,000 years ago, and it doesn't seem like it's happened yet. Seven times in the Revelation. I've noted every single time as we've worked through the book. God speaks about something soon or quick. And depending on your translation, it either says soon or quickly or shortly or suddenly. But understand in Greek, God uses time in two ways. Not just the kind of time, but the time of time. And here he's describing really here um, the kind of time. That once it starts, it's going to unfold very, very quickly. And we've already seen that as we studied the seal, the trumpet, and the bold judgments and how quick they went down. And the word soon is the word taxis. We get our word tachometer in English. And uh, it speaks of something that is fast. When we were teenagers in the 70s, we would put a tachometer up on the steering column of our car. I think it made us think it was going to go faster. It didn't. But you put it up there anyway to be cool. Well, the point is, is that once the rapture of the church takes place that is imminent, it could happen at any moment. And in that sense, it can be very soon, but once it begins to happen, it will all go very, very quickly. Understand, after Jesus ascended into heaven, he could have come back 10 minutes later, 10 hours later, 10 weeks later, 1,000 years later. Nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come and to catch up his church. Yet it's amazing that in these days, we are seeing prophecy fulfilled for the second coming because much must happen for the second coming to unfold. And of course, when you see that happening, you should be reminded that it is that much closer. Look, if the early church saw some of these things unfolding in their day, they would have been absolutely blown away. But now we live in a day where most Christians are just asleep. They're so entertained by the world, they have no idea what is really going on around them. And yet, every generation is to be expectant because he could have come in the first century. He can come in this century. He can come at any moment. And so Paul tells us that we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath of God to come. So don't miss what every Greek reader would have picked up in the first century, that this is not simply a progression of events. When it happens, it will be very quick to show us the things which must soon or suddenly take place. And so we learn here in verse 6 that this angel of God reveals to his bondservant, and he writes to us, his bondservants, of what is going to happen soon. And again, that is an encouragement in terms of the authenticity of this prophecy. It's faithful and true, but also it is a reminder, it's an encouragement to anticipate that he could come very, very soon. 
We are seeing so many things taking place in these latter days that are indicative of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as these developments are unfolding with increasing speed, it's important to be certain of your salvation. If you are not 100% sure that you're truly saved, or if you think that anything other than God's grace is responsible for your salvation, let us send you a pamphlet and message entitled, Would You Like God as Your Friend? Simply call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and ask for Would You Like God as Your Friend? And to listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app or direct your web browser to searchthescriptures.org to listen to program REV67. Tomorrow, part two of Are You Ready for Jesus' Return? Join us then as we search the Scriptures. (laughs) 